0: Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 76. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier on in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy
1: at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John. I'm doing great. Just listening to the gentle hum of my robot vacuum cleaner while we're recording this intro, but I digress. We're both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey.
0: A journey to virtual enlightenment.
1: So let's take a trip.
0: Great, Nick. Hey, uh, this week we're talking to Josh Fidel, and um, we're in uh, classic Nerd Journey fashion. We're going on multiple episodes this week, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's just too much goodness when we talk to different people to get it all in one episode. Either that, or we're really bad at interviewing. I can't decide. One of those two. But yeah, Josh Fidel, he's been in the industry for a while, has a lot of good experience to share, and I just thought that there are a lot of nuggets that our listeners can get from the things he had to share.
0: Yeah. um, He had this interesting thing that he said about the, uh, the engineer brain, like, like what that's, that's like for him and, and how he views growth. I think he talked about sphere of accountability. I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. And listen closely folks for the part where he talks about building a crystal palace as it relates to infrastructure because i think that was just a really interesting concept and you'll just have to give your own opinion on that but i thought it was fascinating
0: awesome okay well this is part one of our interview with josh fidel Josh Fidel, thanks for joining us on the Nerd
2: Journey podcast. It is great to be here. Thank you, Mr. White.
0: That's right. Just thank me, Nick. You. Oh, uh... well, thank
2: you too, Nick. We
1: love you too. No, Nick Nick's didn't all really quiet because I'm just doing the recruiting, folks. No big deal.
0: He <laughs> recruited it, pitched the idea, made sure Josh got here. Not much. Not much. Okay, only everything. Scheduled everything. <laughs> That's right.
2: <laughs> kept me on task. Yeah. Which, in, I mean, that's a full time job in itself. Roping
0: these wife. two guys in. You wouldn't believe it. Anyway. Guys, we've been, we just hit record. We've been talking for, I want to say, at least an hour. An Is hour right? and 15. Yeah. An hour and 15. Okay. Yeah. We should have, we should have. It was a great pre
1: episode prep. I mean, we're very organized. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we just have great conversation. That's we true.
0: But none of that was on tape and none of you will ever hear it. It wasn't even accidental we just didn't think to hit record earlier um but Josh you know as we get into this and into the official like recorded discussion can you tell us uh what your title is and what you do today uh, just as a means of introduction uh
2: absolutely I am a principal solution architect for advisix technologies uh, we are mainly in the uh what do you call it north central, Mississippi Valley, north to like Chicago to Boston, New York, Uh, we're up in Rochester, we're all the way down to Tennessee. Um, We're a technology company, we do consulting, we we sell hardware, we have a huge managed services. Uh, We're one of the few VMware partners who has uh, multiple what do they call it? Master competencies? Yeah, Master mm. Services like Competency. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Service Master Competency. Except I think they changed the name recently, and it's something else now, like Principal Services Partner. Yeah, they like know. to
1: do that every couple of years to keep people on their toes. The yeah, name's change. Yeah. That
2: doesn't, doesn't sound familiar to me. Goes yeah, we... Um, I was just talking to our CTO today, Chris Miller, and he mentioned something about it, and I... I just, I I registered that it changed. I forgot what the name was, but but yeah, so we've got multiple VCDXs. Um, We've got me and i worked for VMware. Um, Yeah. It's a bunch of really, really good people who are really, really smart, who I really like working with and uh, it's great.
0: Let me ask you a question before we get into your career overview, just really quickly. Um, you mentioned VCDX, which is that, you know, highest level VMware certification. Did you ever think about climbing that certification ladder yourself?
2: Um, I have, and I've, I've asked people about it. I'm like, Hey, should I go for this? And most of them have said, yeah, you're absolutely qualified. You could absolutely do it. I mean, I, I, that's what I do for a job now is these, you know, large design engagements. Um, and I realized if I can already do the work, I mean, yes, it's nice to have the certificate, the title, and to have the shirt, get get the brand, right? Um, but I have more important things that I'm focusing on right now. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've helped mentor VCDX candidates, and they, they have achieved what they set out to do. I feel like I'm probably okay. Will mm-hmm. I do it sometime? Yeah, probably. Just cuz hey, I want the shirt, right? Um
1: And the number they tattoo on your arm, right?
2: Ooh.
1: <laughs> I thought it was on the inside of your I, eyelid. I thought oh, they were
2: implanting me. chips now and they were buying them from Bill Gates or something. It's I,
1: I don't know. I never made it past VCP.
2: My understanding is <laughs> that that chip just unlocks doors wherever you
1: walk around,
0: so
2: Oh, that's yeah, the I RFID. Yeah. No, I thought it was the COVID tracking. That's why they were putting up the five G towers, and you had have to have <laughs> sorry too much time on social media. Uh,
0: <laughs> how are how are you doing in uh, in co- these COVID times too? By the way, like are you, are you coping okay?
2: Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, me personally, very little has changed. Um, even though I'm very personable and outgoing, I'm also kind of introverted, and sure. I don't go out a lot as is. Um, I, I do my work. I mean, you know, before before the quarantine in Ohio, um, I hadn't been to my office for probably three, four months. Wow. Um, okay. I'm, a, I'm a very connected person. I have my cell phone. I have internet access. Uh, if you need me, you can call me, email, text me. Ping me on Twitter. Hit me up on Microsoft Teams, uh, Slack. You know, whatever is necessary. There's multiple communications channels. Um,
0: That sounds like too many, but okay.
2: I it it does actually get a little overwhelming. I've got you know like (laughs) I've got one, two, three. I got Slack with four different channels, four completely different social groups. Oh, Google Hangouts. I have you know, some friends I talked to on Google hangouts were all across the country. Um, yeah, it's, it is hard at times to keep up. Uh, but there's, there's no one platform that's really good enough. Hmm. I like different aspects. I like the social aspect of Twitter. I like the directness of just a group chat and hangouts. I like multiple channels in Slack. Um, I'm not sure what I like about Microsoft Teams yet. I'm working on that. I'll figure something out.
0: It's interesting because um, there's there's always the network effect, right? Like the the value of the of the communications medium is magnified by the more people who use it. But then there's also just cultural differences in the way people use different things. Um, like I I noticed like I've been exposed for the first time the last couple of weeks to TikTok, which is you know another 15 second like video recording social media platform you know and but people used to use the other one whichever you know that disappeared a couple years ago and it seemed like for sketches and like comedic purposes and you know meme type things and people are using tiktok for lip syncing and in short choreographed dances so the medium is the same but culturally how it's used is different and i think that that um translates to different like you know even texting and like other communications uh platforms as well just an observation
2: if you okay so if you look at if you look at what our parents use it's facebook you know and my my parents are in their early seventies now. Um, they use Facebook. I was a I mean, we've been doing social media since we were kids. What what was you know what was IRC? Yeah,
0: it's very was, similar to what that. was
2: Merck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, or or Discord. Mm-hmm. Um, bulletin boards, I mean that was like our first when we were, you know, teenagers, like young.
0: That's funny i I do the only person that i ever knew who actually was on bbs's for any you know reasonable amount of time i just thought it's such a waste he's a ccie and like security now but um i i wonder if there's a a straight line to be drawn
2: (laughs) it's it's just it's immersion in a digital culture and Mm -hmm. adaptability i mean if you look at you know what uh what our kids are doing Discord, TikTok, uh, what else? Insta kind of. Did they learn to type still? With their thumbs. They just type with their thumbs now.
0: Now I'm talking about t- touch typing. Is, is Oh, that... no
2: touch. So funny story. Uh, I, I had to take uh touch typing in school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of my required electives. I actually failed it. <laughs> <laughs> um. But now I type, like, I don't know, 100-something a minute, right? Um, but do they give it to kids in school? No, they give them video games. They give them mm. simulators. Hey, you know, shoot down the alien by pressing your A key with your pinky. Oh, we had okay. Mavis Beacon. That was a video game, too.
0: Yeah. Mavis yeah. Beacon teaches typing.
2: I, I, okay, now I'm dating myself. I learned to type on a, a Selectric. IBM yeah. Selectric.
0: Same, same. Yeah, 1990,
2: that, like, well, I guess 88, but uh whew. all right. Oh my goodness. No wonder our bodies ache. <laughs> oh
0: man.
1: That's a pretty cool tech history lesson, but let's learn a career history lesson from you, Josh. So can you start by telling us a little bit about how you got into the field and sort of how you progressed to where you are? We, we're it? always interested in... yeah. People's career progression. So, And did it have
0: anything to do with that electric
1: typewriter? Right. Was that the major influence that got you into the tech industry?
2: No. Absolutely Hmm. not. Okay. Um, So, I mean, there's there's a long story when it comes to, like, career. Uh, There was the Marine Corps. There was – I was a bartender uh, when I lived in Japan. I was a you know tattoo artist, body piercer in Mexico when I lived down there. Um, I was a cab driver in New Orleans. And actually, that's where my tech journey started. I was sitting in a coffee shop one day. Uh, a friend of mine, Brian, came in. Hey, what you doing? going to go take this test. They'll pay for you to go to school. They'll pay for your test. And it was the state of Louisiana was putting this on. And it's because they needed more technology people to help grow technology in Louisiana. And so I qualified for the program. I said, sure, I'll go do that. And that's how I got my NT4, you know, back in the the early nineties. And, uh, it was mid nineties. Anyway, um, I started there and, you know, built white boxes at a mom and pop shop for a side gig and, uh, did some web programming and, The first, the first like big, real technical job I got was a, uh, desktop rollout for an insurance company through a contractor, uh, you know, like, like a Robert half type of company, right? They, Mm -hmm. Hey, we need, we need a body to fill this position. Can you do it? Yes. Okay. You're in. And that was my first professional, like, Ooh, I'm an it now hot dog. And they were replacing, uh, do they still call them dumb, dumb monitors. Basically, it was, it was endpoints for a mainframe. They were replacing them all with Windows ninety eight PCs, hmm. and uh, so did that. And just kind of started learning this stuff. Um, I'd always been interested in technology. I, I read a lot of sci fi. You know, John, we were talking about uh, the great Dismal. Why can't I think of his name now? William Gibson. William Gibson. Yeah, sorry. Now I'm thinking of him by his Twitter handle. Jeez. Uh, Social media again. Um, And and I saw technology and I understood the, the dystopian future that we were moving towards. And if technology is taking over and you can see it is, you might as well be a part of it and understand it. So when the time comes, you can take it apart. Yeah. Makes and, sense. Uh, it, it was, it, it's a control thing, right? I, 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 don't want to be controlled by technology. I'd rather learn to control it. Sure. Yeah. Um, or at least understand how it's being used. So, and then, uh, worked my way up slowly. Um, Let's see, consulting, I mean, I've done some some in house, uh, in house positions. Um, You know, during the the downturn in 2007 2008, I went inside to a hospital and worked for a hospital. And that was very interesting. I actually that was where I met uh, two of my current coworkers, oddly enough, uh, talk about it being a small, small area. And it was, it was the downturn had to take a, you know, a steady job for a steady paycheck. Cause consulting was not paying that well. And, uh, actually the consulting company I was with right before the hospital actually had to shut its doors. It went bankrupt, uh, because of the, because of the downturn the financial bubble exploding and worked at the hospital, worked there for a while, very good learning experience, learned a lot about security. Um, That's actually where they sent me to get my certified ethical hacker. So that's when I started down the security path and understanding security. I'm not as deep as I'd like to be, um, but I certainly understand the nature of it now. Um, However, I saw someone who, uh, who said I always wanted to start a security company that did uh, intrusion detection, and I would call it Seems Legit, S-E-I-M. Yes. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny. Seems Legit, nice. Yeah, that that amused me immensely. Um, but it, it was an interesting job uh, because I ended up working directly for the CTO, and we built an EMR from the ground up. And I was the only system administrator slash engineer. And I had to do pretty much everything. I, uh, had to figure out the networking, had to do the virtualization layer, had to do the storage myself. I mean, I basically built this entire infrastructure for this application by myself and, uh, I had a, a team of 10 developers and me oh i had to do the sql uh sql server stuff the dba stuff cleaning things up and so i had to learn all this database administration uh, which was actually really good they sent me to sql classes so i learned to become a dba and what dbas deal with and uh just to, to quote a court a current meme uh toss a coin to your dba because those poor people <laughs> um, so yeah i learned enough about that uh networking didn't get it didn't get into networking as deeply as i wanted but learned enough um again
0: was that I to support people, that application stack did you need to support just the that
2: application stack yeah had, had to do because the the hospital wanted the application they wanted the application stack they wanted the functionality but they didn't want it to impact anything inside the environment so it had to be completely standalone with just uplinks got it and those uplinks could easily be cut down if anything went wrong because of whatever testing it was a really neat emr it brought in data from about uh, four different hospitals and, it, and when i say data i mean reports test results images everything i mean just massive influx of data and then ran it through a transformation engine uh called CorePoint, and then it dumped it into uh, you know massaged the data dumped it into our database data storage image storage whatever uh but then it could be called up at, at any of a, about 140 different practices in the area and uh so it it was streamlining the efficiency of the medical practice in that geographic area and, and it was successful, it, it did a good job. Um, and it was, it was a really cool project and that's where I really cut my teeth on being an architect and architecting something. And I know I did a good job because after I left that position and went back to consulting, um, even with documentation, everyone was afraid to touch that system. It ran for four years straight with no downtime nice after wow. i left it and i'm like i did a good job All <laughs> right. yeah. um, that's so interesting because
0: you know i deal with uh um, medical companies now in my position and oftentimes i've heard that uh emr's electronic medical record systems can be a competitive advantage um for the organization if they have a good one or they build one from scratch or they implement it you know one off the shelf but implement it really really well um to fit their needs and i think if i'm not mistaken nick you had to support like virtualization with epic on top of it right like, epic core oh so, epic core uh, oh so
1: manufacturing and erp system nothing yeah. to do with healthcare
0: yeah okay i'm i'm mixing Ep- uh, epicor and epic then
2: I, I would argue that ERP systems are kind of identical to EMRs, but except the products, you just have humans moving through the system. Right. Sure. And they it's all have all these attached. Format. Yeah, it's all—it's all about the the data flow, right? It's all about the data. Mm-hmm. Um. And and the infrastructure underneath shouldn't need to be so customized that it becomes, you know, a delicate flower. Um, I, I like to think of infrastructure when when i'm architecting good infrastructure i like to think that i'm i'm building a crystal palace and it is beautiful and it is elegant but it can also withstand a 800 pound boulder from a trebuchet <laughs> it's you know it's a it's a yeah that's that's what good architecture needs to be
1: Um, nice yeah. yeah and you you learn so much when you build systems like that and you build every component of it from the ground up you know if I'm someone who's just coming into the industry and I get a job as part of a team that just does networking or just does storage or just does one other aspect of that system I don't get the exposure that someone does who has built all components and I think that's kind of exposure leads you to make the journey to architect a little bit easier. You think? Am I wrong or right about that?
2: I I would agree with. I would actually tell people and anyone who thinks they're anyone who says I want to be an architect for IT systems is starting out from the wrong side. If you really want to learn IT systems and understand them, uh, except when it's I would say that today, cloud-native infrastructure like you know Google Cloud, uh, Azure, um, Amazon, you don't necessarily need to be hands-on, but if you really want to understand what's going on at a deep, deep level, uh, get hands-on, plug in the cables, you know, tra- trace down ethernet in the data center, uh, trace fiber cables, uh, plug stuff in it, not that you really need to do that anymore and i think people who are you know i i talked to these uh engineers who are you know in their early 20s and they're doing stuff in the cloud now and i'm just like wow that is cool you don't have to lift a tray of discs and shove it into a rack you lucky dog you <laughs> you um,
0: said plug-in cables but you didn't say crimp them so
2: i'm happy
1: <laughs> yeah that's a different challenge entirely i
2: i when i bought my house i cabled it entirely including all the drops and everything and yeah there's a reason i became an architect too right uh,
0: <laughs> that's so interesting
2: but 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 being so as as an implementation engineer or you know we we had this discussion right uh you say engineer, and those are the people who are pre sales. You say consultant, those are the people who actually implement, where maybe it should be flipped. But anyway. Um, but having to, being an implementation engineer, after I left the hospital, uh, I, I got to clean up a bunch of messes that architects left. Uh, somebody didn't order the right cables. Or, you know, this blade chassis is not compatible with this whatever switch or this uh, S- SPF or whatever the case may be. And and seeing that and saying, okay, no, this is the proper way to do it. No, this is the proper way to do it. And then, uh, so, so I left the hospital. I went to a, a very East Coast consulting firm. Uh, it was a friend of mine. And... Uh, unfortunately they had a rough financial period things had to happen I kind of said hey I'll fall on my sword for you so I did Um, so I left there and I got picked up actually by a much larger consulting company and this gave me the opportunity to go do things like multiple geographical locations around the country doing replication you know over dark fiber or however they were doing it and testing failover and documenting these systems and documenting why i did things a certain way i mean from down to the very port level of what port is connected to what server connected to what storage connected to you know what peripherals how is it connected over uh, across you know one of my big ones was from New York to Dallas. That was that was a great gig because I ended up spending like, what, six months in New York setting th- everything up and designing it, like stayed in Union Square, really got to know New York, walk the streets, meet the people, um, set all this up. And then I got to fly down to Dallas and spent like four months in Dallas doing this. And it was... And then I fell in love with barbecue and cowboy boots
1: because Texas, right? Um, nobody Dallas ever is said... cool, but Fort Worth is way better. I'll
0: mm. just say that. See, I, I was wondering if anybody
2: else. said... fighting words, Nick.
1: <laughs> well, I live in Fort Worth, so...
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I like Deep Ellum. That's... It's, it's cool.
1: Don't get me wrong. Dallas is cool, but...
2: Deep Ellum goes better with my beard than Fort Worth. That's all I'm saying.
0: Nobody ever said... Uh, this data is from New York city.
2: <laughs> no, but they're like, who the heck is this guy wandering around? Um,
0: <laughs> so actually,
2: no, it was, it was cool. It was a construction company. So there's, you know, I'd be like all, all the you know, kind of blue collar construction. You guys would be like, Hey, there's a computer guy. What's up. Yeah. Like, what's happening.
0: Do you felt like, um, it seems like there's three different things that you could have learned from. Um, and like that kind of pushed you to, forward and in growth. One is like that step up in scope, right? From like regional, like maybe single location stuff to like across the country type stuff. And then another one would be um, maybe showing up and implementing a design that wasn't maybe fully baked or wasn't designed well um, or attention to detail wasn't, you know, there was no necessarily like not all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. But then sometimes there's also like showing up implement something and you're also cleaning up the mess from like the previous vendor right where and so i'm trying to understand which of those things you feel like push you forward or maybe it was a combination of all three
2: it was the engineer brain Hmm. we were just talking about this right it's you see a problem and you want to solve it um I was just watching the movie robots with my kids and one big weld His saying is, uh, what is it? Find a need, fill a need. Mm. And, And our brains go, there's a problem. Let's solve the problem. And at first you're just focusing on these little problems like, okay, I don't have the right cables. How do I get the right cables? So you learn that step. And then you're like, how do I keep this from happening again? So you go to your your architects and you say, hey, this is what happened here. And you, you try to tell people, but nobody likes to hear that they're wrong. So does it really sink in? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but what I finally figured out is I could do that job. So I'm going to go do that job so that people downstream from me no longer have this problem. I wanted to take responsibility for the problem and solve it. After, came
0: after. after cleaning up a bunch of mistakes that people made upstream you're like if I was the one that was upstream doing this job these mistakes wouldn't have been made obviously yeah. I'm more qualified or I could learn to do that job better than the person or the people that I've I've had to like accept all this like work from
2: it, it's just, it, people have been talking a lot about spheres lately spheres of accountability spheres of influence things like that um and i think what you're actually doing as an individual is you are growing your sphere of accountability if if i am a system administrator in a two-person shop my sphere of responsibility is to make sure that my employees have a solid, secure IT system, and that's my sphere of responsibility. If I'm a consultant, my sphere of responsibility is my customer, who is that IT department, and those employees. If I become the architect, my sphere of accountability is the engineers who have to do the implementation, the IT department that wants us to, to design and implement this system, and the employees. And, and you're, every step of the way, you're growing your sphere of accountability. The problem I see is as people grow their spheres of accountability, they actually become less accountable. And for me personally, I can't do that. I I need to be accountable. I want people to hold me accountable. And if I screw something up, I will be the first to admit it. Absolutely. Own own your mistakes, Hmm. but learn from them as well. Interesting. Um, so you, I I can see like
0: you, you had you kept on seeing these mistakes that were coming to you as the person who had to implement them and having to clean them up and that pushed you to grow uh, your sphere of accountability and the desire to grow that I think maybe is what that came from seeing those mistakes.
2: Yeah, the, very well, very well could be. It was it was so organic I didn't even like consider it. And I'm kind of viewing this all in retrospect.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, It was, you you get frustrated when you're facing the same mistakes, day in and day out, you get frustrated. I, I I'm sure we've all had less than stellar managers in the past and we get frustrated with their mistakes and we see their mistakes and we learn from their mistakes, even if they don't learn from their mistakes. And we navigate around that. And eventually, we get to the point where we're like, you know what? I could do that job. I see these mistakes. I understand the responsibilities. Heck, if you've had managers like I've had in the past, they'll actually hand you their responsibilities and say, I need you to do this. <laughs> but you're going to do it anyway because that's the type of person that, which maybe it's the Midwestern work ethic that also gets me in trouble. I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's um, interesting to me, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think some people who are the engineers or administrators doing the work, hands on the keyboard, they don't really seem to want to let that go. Like I must be the one doing the thing and they're not as interested in solving the problem for someone else as you are.
2: By keeping that system up and running they are solving a problem that the, the sphere of accountability for that system for that application might just be the end users and maybe that's what people are comfortable with um, at the same time i also there's nothing wrong with wanting to do just this thing just this small sphere of influence as long as you want to do it the best that you possibly can and and make it the best that you possibly can. I would, I would never denigrate anyone for being, uh, you know, the best BST bash programmer. I would never denigrate anyone for being the best look at COBOL. You know, people used to make fun of people still make fun of COBOL, but all of a sudden something happened and what was it, New Jersey, or I forget. One of the states is just like, we need COBOL program programmers, and we need them now, and we will pay an incredible amount of money. Props to those people who kept those COBOL chops, because I hope they're getting paid right now.
0: Um, right, there's an unemployment system that was running on COBOL, and, uh, and then they couldn't scale it because they didn't have anybody, like it was, they were kind of in long tail mode, right? It's like, uh, as this fades, like we'll bring, we have plenty of time to bring a new system on. Uh-oh.
2: I would, I would also, at the one time, at the, and on the one hand, I would denigrate them for letting it fade like that because you're creating technical debt. On the other hand, I'm glad they realized it and hopefully they get back on track. Right, But that's, again, it's something in the system you have to think about. You, you can't, you can't build up that much technical debt that you're digging your way out of a hole when you should be soaring. Right. And, and unfortunately I think there are a lot of managers, directors, executives out there, uh, who, who don't keep that in mind and it's unfortunate.
0: Or, you know, I. I kind of have, you know, maybe a little bit of my economics brain on where I just think that the incentives are not aligned correctly to fix that problem. Right. And that comes probably from leadership, right? They're like, well, is it running? I mean, is it, is it really a problem? Like, do we need to really invest like our limited resources in fixing that? Or can we just keep on kind of limping along?
2: So let's talk about airlines. Airlines, some of them, have such antiquated back-end systems that it would cost them so much to dig themselves out of that technical debt and bring themselves up to date to really give good offerings to their customers, that there are entire... Like small economies built around just keeping airline systems running, and how do you get into that much debt where it's going to cost you so much to get out of this hole that it's not economically feasible in any way, shape, or form? And and there were a lot of decisions made about you know whatever people talk about buying back stock and you know excessive executive compensation, whatever. the fact of the matter is their leadership 15 years ago, 10 years ago, didn't see the problem and didn't do anything about it, or they saw the problem and didn't care because it didn't affect their quarterly bonus. Um, And then it just got so bad and so bad and so bad. Now what do you do?
0: Short-term incentives versus medium to long-term incentives.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, there's a, a there's a guy named Joe Onisick who uh, really like the guy very smart guy and he talks about transfer transformational modality mm. and it is getting into the mindset of always being able to change and always being able to adapt. He uses it specifically in a business you know enterprise sense, but he was a marine. Uh, I was a marine. It adapt and overcome you you must be able to adapt you must be able to learn that would be my only that would be my only warning to people who are focused on i'm just going to do this little thing this one thing and i don't mean little in a demeaning sense i mean little in a, a small area uh, a small sphere of influence right i'm only going to do this small thing and i'm going to be excellent at it that's cool now let's think long term in 10 years is that still going to be a viable technology i don't know
0: can you wait it you out till, uh, t- till retirement basically. until it comes back <laughs> but even then um, right then the, you, that's a percentages game right it's like yeah am i, I going to survive long enough until and then you're also banking on like enough like People making bad decisions when it comes to technical debt, that they absolutely need you. That's kind of a weird, uh, weird risk to take.
2: Five years ago, would you have ever thought that Microsoft SQL Server DBAs, what was it? The MC DBA certification or the Microsoft SQL Server? Five years ago, would you have ever thought, no, Microsoft's going to get rid of that?
0: No, actually, I wouldn't have.
2: Nope what just happened a couple months back (laughs) it's gone right so and and this actually ties in another question you had like am i going to go get a vcdx maybe i could will that be a viable technology in 5 10 15 years i don't know hopefully i won't be working in 15 years because i'll be uh 62 so yeah, I think I'm just going to write out the consultant thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but yeah, I I, I don't know. Um, and and that is money. Uh, that was always one of my concerns with how technology vendors dealt with some of their end users is that engineers and system administrators pay a lot. Of money to become certified.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very expensive. If you don't have an employer who's going to back you paying for that certification, you're going to have to scrimp and save and sacrifice. I'm going to scrimp and save and sacrifice. I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to get certified in this technology. How? Oh, and I have to recertify in a year, two years, That is one cool thing about the VCDX. Once you have it, it never goes away, right? But your VCP, what about your VCAP? I don't know. I've never researched. Does a VCAP go away? You have to recertify for that?
0: You're talking about the VMware certified advanced professional?
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, actually, I don't know.
0: I think they did away with the VCP. Uh, They undid the expiration, right? This is a VMware Well, Yeah, but now
2: you get now you get VCP nineteen or VCP twenty. It's the you know the last two digits of the year, um, right?
1: I can't remember how it applies to VCAP, but I would think there's some sort of recertification. Well, I think we'll, we'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes.
2: So, you, so you're paying a subscription fee for your certification now? Um,
1: well, I mean, I, I certification as a service, Josh. I I actually
2: <laughs> Cass, CAS C A S.
0: I actually. Understand it and and maybe even believe in it. Like imagine, you know, instead of architect like you're talking about a physical architect Right, so you're hiring somebody to design your house that person like got certified like they're certified architect in like 1960 like Do you want to know that that person has gotten continuing education? They've kept up to date modern building codes all those types of things or was like a one-time certification good enough um, I I would lean towards, I need that person to have continuing education. Same thing for an electrician, same thing for a plumber, you know, of any significance. If, if you're investing in something like a, like a ground up significant build.
2: Fair enough. However, let me ask you this. If your architect got certified in 1960 and then brought you a portfolio of the two or three houses he designed a year for the last 25 years and said, here's the addresses and you're certainly welcome to tour them. And you can talk to the owners and you can talk to the people I build it for. Would you still need to see those certifications?
0: I think, um, you're talking about like a shortcut, right? So, um, Like a, like a certification says that I don't need to do that work, that you actually passed a test that said that you knew all that information, as opposed to me having to like check on, on that for, especially if I'm interviewing you, you and your portfolio versus like two or three other people in their portfolio. So it's a lot to have to go through. So it, it is like, it's a shortcut. And, and I would even argue like maybe it's not a good one, right? Like I, like maybe like you know you those things need to be checked like physical and virtual right um
2: do i like that having job? having helped write some of the exams for vendors and and you know being a, a uh i forget what they call it an education advisor or something like that there's there's a technical term for it but uh helping write some of the exams um, I sometimes wonder, do do the exams actually exhibit a mastery of the subject? Um, I could memorize port numbers and uh, you know, theoretical upper and lower limits of a system, but that's not going to teach me how to troubleshoot the system.
0: Yeah, I think in the technology industry, we have the advantage of, like, the higher up a, a certification goes, the more, like, practical hands-on you need. Or, like, to your point, like, you know, VCDX is like a portfolio in defense, right? So, um, like, that actual practical hands-on experience is there's just no way around it. It's it's really just validating that you have enough of a background and attention to detail um, to 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 go through that as opposed to like kind of the entry level where it's, you know, how much knowledge would be crammed into your brain.
2: Yeah, no, I, I can see. I mean, it, it. if you look at it in relation to, you know, getting a bachelor's, getting a master's, getting a PhD, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, but then the other thing I worry about is, you know, as you go up that educational chain, you become so specialized that you're only good for one specific thing, which is ultimately... One of the reasons um, I, I left, uh, I'll say, I left VMware.
1: design editor's choice
0: i don't i don't know who's responsible for that for that decision and for that edit but uh definitely a cliffhanger i want to hear about that next week yeah oh man (laughs) um i you know just going back and listening again that idea you know that josh said about sphere of accountability increasing um with growth I, i just it never really um I never really had anybody say it to me that way is like you know hey you're increasing your sphere of influence obviously you know as you try to advance maybe an individual contributor um, career but to increase your sphere of accountability too that is where maybe the the real measurement is
1: most definitely and could you imagine the sense of pride someone would get from building a system That could withstand four years of no downtime. That's just fantastic. I think Josh made the Crystal Palace exactly what he wanted it to be.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because he said Crystal Palace, and I initially imagined that he meant something fragile. But then I realized he was talking about something like super strong. You know, like the the castle. Well, that Elsa, you know, makes while she sings "Let It Go." Yeah, one of those.
1: Well, I was thinking about the ice castle from the Superman movie with the other super people? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think it was Superman 2, maybe? Superman I think of Superman, Superman Can't 1. not
0: remember. Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> that's that's what I'm in right now, folks. Fortress of Solitude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I also thought it was, it was cool just to hear about Josh's ideas about, um, you know, life in the time of COVID that we're all going through right now. Absolutely. So uh, I, you know, from our crew to yours, like, you know, hope that you're keeping safe and uh, staying sane, you know, doing whatever you need to do.
1: Yep. And one way to stay sane is to subscribe to this podcast. We definitely want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey.
0: All right, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd Underscore, signing off.